0: So typically at this point, I say if you have your Bibles, open to a certain Bible passage. But today, I'm going to encourage you, if you have your bulletin, turn it over to the sermon notes side. And because I recently did a lot of academic work on this passage of Scripture, Psalm 110, I've provided the PPV, Pastor Phil version, of this psalm however we want to call it. And so I'm going to read that in a moment, and it will, I think, be helpful. I've even made some things um, useful even for this particular sermon and message. I've bold printed some of the highlighted words that we're going to look at. Uh, Last week we looked at Psalm 2, and we're in the middle of a short series on what is a blessed life, and we're looking at some of the psalms because my conviction is that as we study Matthew's gospel throughout 2018, which is primarily what we'll do throughout this year— and as we're about to study the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount begins with this word makarios, blessed. And I believe that Jesus has in mind the Old Testament teaching of what a blessed life looks like. So before we dive into Jesus' teaching on what a blessed life looks like in the New Testament, we're taking a brief break from Matthew and seeing a few Psalms. Now, the Psalm that you see here in front of you on your handout and in the Bible Whatever translation you have, it will not have the word makarios or asher in the Hebrew. Blessed's not there. The reason we're looking at Psalm 110 is partly uh, selfish because I did a lot of academic work on it and had to turn in a paper. The second reason is because last week we did see that the word blessed appears at the end of Psalm 2. And it said, Blessed are all who take refuge in the King, the Messiah. The Messiah. And as you're going to see, this psalm, Psalm 110, is an interpretation of, a continuation of Psalm 2. And I've been trying to argue, and I don't know if I've done a great job at it, so I want to try another time to make it really clear that the psalms are telling a story about King David. And that Psalms 1 and 2 are an introduction to the whole psalms. So when you open the psalms, you'll see on the first page of Psalm 1, Book one, and then there's going to be book two after or before Psalm 73, and then book three, book four, book five. There's these five collections of psalms, five books. So, so take this little anecdote and think about this for a moment. In books one and two, 57 of the 72 psalms are either by or about King David. That's a lot, right? It's the majority of those psalms. You're reading Psalms 1 and 2. You keep reading about David's life, David's prayers, David's fears, David's laments and cries for God's help, David's praises. It's telling you David's on the throne, David's running or whatever else from enemies, but God's delivering, etc. David, David, David. That's books 1 and 2. At the end of book 2, I pointed this out last week, it's the very last phrase of the end of book 2. It says this. Now the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So now this David story kind of ends, and in book three, you have very few David psalms, if any at all. In fact, in books three and four, you have only three psalms that people would say are referencing David at all. So it's like, where'd David go? Where'd the king go, if you want to put it that way? And if you know anything about Israel's greater story, David's on the throne. It's going great. He's like the greatest king. And then all of a sudden, things go down. David's son Solomon leads the kingdom to get divided and then eventually get overtaken. And then there's no king in Israel. They have been deported. They have been exiled out. Babylon has come in and taken out the whole kingdom of Israel. And it's as if Psalms book. Three and four are, are telling you during the time where where's God? And I'm, I'm not making this up because if you look at Psalm 89, it's the last Psalm of Book Three. Listen to this phrase in Psalm 89. Oh God, you have renounced your covenant with your servant. You have defiled the crown of David into the dust. Do you see what's going on in book three? Where's God? God, where is your covenant promises to David? There's a lot of lamenting. There's a lot of crying out, God, 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 where are you? In book three. So what's the answer in book four? The first psalm of book four is a psalm of Moses about taking refuge in God's kingdom. Huh. A psalm of Moses reminding you of the days of Moses that even when Pharaoh's around, God delivers his people. And you can take refuge in this God. That's how book four begins. And then there's a series, a slew of psalms in book four that say, Yahweh reigns. The Lord reigns. Think for those of you that were downstairs earlier. We read Psalm 96. Let the nations know that the Lord reigns. It's glorious. It's an amazing psalm. But here's the issue. In book four, it's just declaring that Yahweh reigns. There's no mention of David. There's no king on the throne. And you're just still kind of like, okay, Yahweh reigns. I see that by faith, not by sight in book four. So the conclusion in book five is that Yahweh does not just reign in theory. He is going to sit on the throne. He will rule over all of his enemies. And the psalm that makes this crystal clear is our psalm, Psalm 110. As one scholar puts it, the fifth book and the fourth book are contrasting one another because David is missing in book four, but in book five, David appears twice in two different collections of psalms. The first collection, I'm going to show you a little diagram so you can kind of see what I'm saying here. This is first section of book five. This is how book five begins. You have pleas for deliverance from these Psalms of David. So 107, 108, and 109 are all Davidic Psalms, Psalms about David. And remember, if you're, you're following through what I just told you, David's been missing. Where's David? Where's the king? He's gone. And then now in Psalm 107, 108, and 109, you have the Davidic prayer, God, where are you going to come back and, 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 and show your reign and rule over all the earth? After Psalm 110, you have what are called the Hallelujah Psalms because they begin and end. They have Hallelujah repeated throughout a whole slew of psalms like that. So in other words, Psalm 110 is like a pivot linchpin psalm that connects a series of, please, God, we're praying for deliverance, David psalms, to then right in the middle a psalm of David, which you're about to see, And then leading to hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So what is being said in Psalm 110 that is leading to all of this hallelujah? Follow along in your bulletin. I'll read. A psalm by David. Yahweh declares to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. Your strong rod May Yahweh extend from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will freely volunteer in the day of your power, in the splendor of holiness from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth. Yahweh has sworn and will not change heart. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will smash kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment from the nations. He will pile up the dead bodies. He will smash the heads over the great lands. He will drink from a stream by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. If you are following closely and you have Psalm 2 fresh in your mind, you should see why people have suggested Psalm 110 is a new interpretation of Psalm 2. It is telling the nations in Psalm 2, be warned, nations, take refuge under this king. You rage and plot against him, but it is only in vain. God will bring justice and judgment. Psalm 110 is, is, is taking all those different themes and ideas. Not only do you have the idea of God's promises of this royal messianic figure ruling over the nations. That's in Psalm 2. That's in Psalm 110. But in both Psalms, ruling over the nations is described as shattering Israel's enemies. Chapter 2, verse 9 of Psalm 2. And then look at the shattering, the smashing over the enemies in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 110. Both Psalms depict Yahweh's anger against the rebellious king. So both of them mention this day of wrath and vengeance. And lastly, both Psalms talk about victory being secured. And in Psalm 2, it was because he says, this is my son. And in this one, it's because the Lord is at the right hand. So for different reasons, but similar ideas. Victory is sure. Yahweh will win. It will be through his Lord or his son. And this is why we're studying Psalm 110 today. It's a continuation from last week. In other words, how do we live a blessed life? How do you have a life full of contentment, of peace, of flourishing? The answer last week was what? Take refuge. Take refuge and shelter underneath of this king. Same point then. Take refuge today underneath the Lord of Psalm 110. So I'm going to ask one question three times in three different ways. Question, first angle. Who is my Lord? Who is my Lord? That's the question. That's the question I ultimately want you to be leaving here thinking about yourself. Who is my Lord? But first, who is my Lord from the angle Who is David's Lord? You see that in our our first verse on your handout there. A psalm by David. I believe David wrote this psalm. Jesus himself, as we read earlier in Matthew Matthew 22, says, David, in the Spirit, wrote, and then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. So that was read earlier in the service. Jesus affirms the authorial writing of this psalm by David. Uh, I was able to study all kinds of scholars that don't think David wrote it. Uh, Apparently, uh, Jesus got it wrong, but, you know, 21st century scholars got it right. You tell me. And it's not just Jesus. In Matthew 22, when Jesus asks, if David wrote this by the Spirit, did anybody object? Well, David didn't write that, Jesus. You got that wrong. Jesus, David, David. He wrote this, Yahweh declared to my Lord. Who's the my Lord? Who is David's Lord? That's Jesus' question, and it silenced everybody in Matthew 22, if you remember that passage being read. They're asking Jesus a bunch of questions. They're trying to accuse him of a bunch of things. He turns the table on them and says, oh yeah? Who's David's son? Who's the Messiah going to be? Who's the Christ? And they say, the son of David. David. How is David's son also David's Lord? Who who is this Lord character? That's the question. We need to answer that question. And the answer is do not put God in a box. He blows up our boxes. He defies all categories. When you study this passage, you will see that David's Lord is both a human king and a divine Lord. A human king and a divine Lord. So look at your handout. I've tried to make this very plain to you. Instead of showing you with Hebrew letters and whatever else, I just did it in English for you. So look at the way I bold printed Yahweh. So in your English versions, you'll often see LORD in all caps. But that's the word Yahweh. Yahweh declared to, and then notice the lowercase l, LORD. Everyone seeing that? That's intentional. Look at verse 5. Do you see the capital LORD? Again, intentional. The reason I did this is because the word in verse 1 and verse 5 is the same word, but with a different vowel, and that vowel makes a big difference. So, Lord, lowercase l, is Yahweh declared to my Adonai. So, like, think of the vowel I at the end of Adonai. Verse 5 is Adonai. Think the letter A at the end of Adonai big deal. What's, what's, what's the point of pointing that out? If you examine the usage of Adonai in the first verse, you'll notice that almost always, with a few exceptions, it is referring to a human master, human Lord. So Yahweh declared to a human Lord, sit at my right hand. But notice that in verse 5, it's Adonai almost every time Adonai is used without exception. It is talking about the divine Lord, So you got two options here. Is the psalm telling you, and I think either of these are fine, but my personal take is that it's the same person, Lord and Lord, but it's the master, because he's going to be a human, that's going to sit at the right hand of God, but he's also divine. He's both. Some scholars are going to try and argue and say, well, maybe in verse 1 it's talking about the human king, and then when it gets to verse 5 it's saying that Yahweh is at the hand, right hand, of the human king. And honestly, that take for me is like, that's, that's saying that the human king in verse 1 is equivalent to Yahweh. So no matter how you parse it out, the vowel difference between Adonai and Adonai is showing you that this Lord that's being referred to here is equivalent with Yahweh, the one true God of the Hebrew Scriptures. Yes, blowing the boxes of the why we think about who, who the king is. It's not just any human king. It's a divine king. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing when he brings this up. And I want to make sure, as we're pausing here for a moment, to say, do you read your Bible like Jesus does? Because when Jesus reads the Bible, he points at this text and he says, do you see, do you see the Lord here? It's not just any son of David. He is the Lord Adonai. That's me, by the way. He's like pointing to himself. He's silencing everybody. One way to think about this uh, is that I don't have a problem with people thinking that David wrote this and is thinking about himself, like my Lord or a future Lord, or maybe that David does, has no idea that one day this is going to be fulfilled by Jesus. I think that's very plausible that David, as he's writing this, or however that's coming about, there's a particular historical context that's being written in Psalm 110, but that there's a deeper, fuller meaning that David doesn't even realize. I think that's very, very plausible, and I had a, a recent personal illustration of this yesterday. Have you all ever watched a movie, and then later found out that there was little details in the movie that they were very intentional about placing this there, and then that there, and then like, oh man, that just totally went over my head. Have you ever had that experience? I had that yesterday. I watched a movie a few weeks back on an airplane flight. I don't recommend it. I'm not going to tell you which movie it is, but here's the point. I watched the movie. It was was, was okay, right? Well, eventually won an Oscar, and then I saw a little YouTube clip yesterday about this guy talking about the movie after winning this Oscar for it, and as he won this Oscar for the movie, he was responding and telling uh, answers to people's theories about little details in the movie, and several of them, I was like, no way, because he's like, yeah, I intentionally did that. And like there was this one part where there was a deer early in the movie, and then in the middle of the movie, at the end of the movie, he's like, Yeah, the deer theme was like an intentional placement of where the deer was. And I was like, I did not catch that. Do you hear what I'm saying? So anyway, I I had this experience of watching a movie, like reading this psalm. The point is, you could read this psalm, and you could say, oh, that's about David as a king, human king, and he's ruling over the nations, and he's got his mighty scepter in his hand, and he's defeating people in battle. It's a coronation psalm, and that's what a ton of modern scholars are going to say. That's what's going on here. Oh, friend, the divine author is giving us a little YouTube clip for us, and he is telling us there's so much more going on in this psalm than what you first see. It is ultimately telling us about a divine Lord. A human king and a divine Lord. That's that's one thing. Do not put God in this box. Do not put the Lord in a box. Look at the next thing of who this Lord is. This, who is my Lord? Verse four. Yahweh has sworn and will not change heart. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest that is forever. David did not last forever. True or false? True. He's dead. How is he a priest forever if he's dead? How about Solomon? Is, it, is Solomon the ultimate Lord who is a priest forever? David's son. How about any of David's descendants? Not until you get to the final descendant who fulfills this, who becomes an eternal priest forever. How do you know that this psalm is not just about a human Lord lowercase l, but the Adonai, a divine Lord. You're a priest forever. The reason he mentions Melchizedek is because in Genesis chapter 16, there's this brief, or 14, sorry, there's this brief encounter with Abraham and Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is a king priest in Jerusalem, Salem, the city of peace. So there's this idea of like, oh, in Jerusalem, there is a king and he's also a priest and there's sacrifices being offered by this guy and then it just never mentions his death and so there's this idea that Melchizedek lasted forever and ever and his dynasty never ended and so this verse is picking up on that in Genesis 14 it's one of those things that like if you knew your Bible well you'd be like oh whoa yeah Melchizedek so there is something there of significance it's not just a weird hey let's just drop some names Melchizedek So, Yahweh has sworn and will not change heart. you are a priest forever. Think about this for a moment. He is both king and priest in this psalm. In the ancient Hebrew scriptures, kings and priests do not mix roles. They do not share offices. But this guy is going to be a priest and a king. He is going to both rule with a mighty scepter, and he's going to be a forgiver and intercessor, an advocate. Picture Jesus in the courtroom. This psalm is saying Jesus is the judge standing behind the desk, putting down the hammer, making judgments. Guess who else Jesus is in this psalm? The defense attorney, the lawyer, the advocate pleading your behalf, on be- your behalf. He's not just one or the other, he's both. He blows up your mindset of like, oh, he's just a judge. No, no, he is a judge. And he is the defendant, helping, protecting. He is the lion who roars. Is he not a lion? The lion of the tribe of Judah? Is he also the lamb, led to the slaughter? Think about Jesus for a moment See how he embodies these two roles of priest and king. Does he not, as a very strong, bold king would, demand repentance and allegiance and tell the Pharisees, your throats are open graves, you are hypocrites, you do not have justice, you are whitewashed tombs. Somebody interrupts Jesus and they say, Jesus, these words, you're insulting these men. So he says, woe to you again, woe to you, woe to you. I mean, it's like, whoa, Jesus, that's fierce. Jesus is also the sheep that was led to the slaughter that did not open his mouth or say a word. Jesus is the one who calls us, take up your cross, let the dead bury the dead. You must hate your father and your mother if you want to come follow me. Whoa, Jesus, that's that's intense. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whoa, Jesus. That's so gentle and comforting and helpful to the hurting. Jesus is the one that says, I did not come to bring peace but division. Fathers and mothers will now hate their children because of me. That'll knock you off your socks, right? But what did the angels declare when Jesus was born? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. So wait, is it division Jesus comes to bring or is it peace? It's both. He's a king. And he says, come, give allegiance to me and not your mom and dad. And that will sometimes divide households. Oh, but I'm coming to bring peace for all who are in my kingdom. It is a kingdom of peace. I am the prince of peace. Think about the way he deals with Peter. Get behind me, Satan. I don't know if he said it like that, but that's how I wanted to say it. (laughs) Peter, you will deny me three times, but in a priestly fashion, I have prayed for you, and you're going to come back. Just, just in Peter's relationship with Jesus, do you see both king? Here's my mission. I'm going to establish my kingdom. You better get behind me, Satan. Do not speak those words ever again. Fierce, bold, strong, gentle, humble. Is Jesus not the one who took a whip and overthrew tables with the money changers? Oh, the injustice, my father's house is a house of prayer. Is not that same Jesus, the one who when he heard that if he would have only come a few days earlier, Lazarus maybe wouldn't have died. And when he hears those words, he says nothing. He just weeps. Does Jesus not blow the categories that we have for what God is like? So many of us in this room, we, we tend to lean toward one or the other. I want you to hold both. King, priest. Lion, Lamb. Hates sin, punishes evil, loves sinners, merciful, forgives sinners. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If you only knew, do not put this Jesus in a box. Do not put this Lord in a box. He defies all our categories. Who is my Lord? He's a priest, he's a king. Additionally, who is my Lord? This psalm makes it quite clear, does it not? That he has victory over his enemies. Is that what the psalm says? Look down at the Psalm again. Notice all of the warlike imagery of this conquering king. All the enemies will be a stool for your feet. This is the image, by the way. You can look this up. I did. Because I'm a nerd and I looked up all these big, huge books in a library. This is the image right here. Under your feet. There are, there are old, like What do they call those? Old pictures, old pictures, archaeological pictures. And this is the image. And it's the king with his foot over someone's head. And it's saying, I've conquered. What's going on here? All the enemies will be under your foot, they'll be like a stool for your feet. Look at your rod, your scepter. That's, by the way, the the same synonym word of the staff that's used in Psalm 2. It's another link that shows you Psalm 110 as an extension of Psalm 12. It's showing the fulfillment that Yahweh is going to reign. He's going to reign on the throne. So take refuge in him. He has a strong scepter. He will rule even in the midst of the enemies. Look, all the enemies are surrounding him. Is Is that troublesome? No. He's going to conquer all of them, and that's what verses 5 through 7 say. Notice the repetition of he will. And this is why I think this is talking about the Lord being the same Lord as verse 1. The enemies are under his feet. Now look what he does with the enemies. This is one of those weird things that, I, that came over. People will say verse 7 is about the human Lord, but verses 5 and 6 are about the divine Lord. And I'm like, maybe they're both. Have you thought about that? Anyway, that's my soapbox. All right. The Lord is at your right hand, and so now because of having Yahweh at the right hand, God and the human king, they're together, they're equal. He will smash kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment from the nations. He will pile up the dead bodies. The word there is corpses. Corpses are filling up the earth. He will smash the heads. Some translations say chiefs. It's like the heads of the households, the heads of the tribes. He's going to smash them. Over the great lands or the earths, you could use translations, it's the word erets. He will drink from the stream by the road. I believe this is a reference back to Samson. After Samson has this great battle of victory, he then drinks by the road. And it could be an illusion in reference to that. And therefore, because of all of that, he lifts up his head. He lifts, he lifts his head up high, is, is the image in the last verse. So, who is my Lord? He's a winner. He wins. He doesn't lose. You want to get on his side. You want to take refuge on his team. You don't want to be against him. You don't want to be his enemy because you're going to lose. So that's who he is. He is a conquering king. And I know at some point, some of you, even if you love the Bible, and some of you that are skeptics of the Bible or your friends who are that aren't here, because of things like this. Like, what? What? Heaping up bodies like this is what i don't like about the bible what is with all of the violence what's with all of this blood guts and gore now number one it is poetry and it could be making a point poetically but still that's a that's an intense point but as i said earlier do not put this jesus in a box don't read this passage One day I hope to teach you about the violence in the Old Testament more thoroughly. I think there are many better answers than maybe some that have been thrown out there. But for today, here's what I want you to think about. If the New Testament uses this passage more than any other passage in the whole Old Testament, that is not an exaggeration. That is not Phil flourishing the preaching point. This is a known fact. How many times is Psalm 110 used? depending on how you count, at least 15 to 20 in the New Testament by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, Peter again in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter in his letter in 1 Peter 3. Whoa, Psalm 110 is like the whole point of the book of Hebrews. And we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But the point is this, all through the whole New Testament, when you read the New Testament, you will see Psalm 110 again and again being referenced to Jesus. Why? Why is this a favorite psalm? And how did Jesus conquer his enemies? How did they interpret Psalm 110 in light of what Jesus did as the conquering king? And this, my friends, is what should give you a little peace if you're like, man, I don't like dead bodies rising. It's, it's, it's not a pleasant image. Palm Sunday is coming up, right? How did the conquering king come into Jerusalem. Sword in his hand, helmet on his head, armor, white horse, a baby donkey. You starting to see the picture already? How does the king come in to be enthroned and conquer and be lifted up to the right hand? How does he do it? Death. Suffering, all the suffering that you see in Psalm 110, all of the slaying of the enemies, Jesus experienced on the cross to Calvary. He will smash the kings in the day of his wrath. Guess who got smashed? The king of the Jews. His head was smashed in with a a crown of thorns on his head. I'll tell you whose head was smashed. His enemies will be under his feet. Remember that picture I just showed you? God's foot on the cross is like on Jesus' head. He's smashing sin when Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus is taking our sin. And he becomes sin. He becomes the embodiment of all the evil in the world as the whole darkness comes over him and sin is being punished as Jesus dies for sinners. That, my friend, is how the New Testament uses Psalm 110. I'm not making this up. Read it for yourself. They quote Psalm 110 and they say, how did Jesus become at the right hand of the Father? The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. How did he conquer the enemies? By dying. Not by swords. Not by military victory. Blow the boxes up of this God that is out to get people. He is out to be gotten by the violence that we have done to him. And through that strange act of love and mercy, he saves and rescues. Philippians chapter 2. We've been studying this upstairs in our Wednesday Bible study. And it says that even though he died or through death, even death on a cross, therefore. So so look this up at some point. Philippians 2 verse 8 and 9. Jesus humbled himself, took on the form of a human body, and he died. He suffered even the worst excruciating death, death on a cross. Next verse, therefore, because of that death, God has highly exalted him. It's the word super exalted. It's like when we say overcooked a dinner, super exalt, like highest place. That's what Psalm 110 is about, isn't it? He's at the highest place, the right hand of God. You can't be any higher than at the right hand of the king. He's not at the king's feet. He is when he's dying. But when he rises from the dead, he's being resurrected and exalted above all others. And then it says this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, 11. And God bestowed on him a name that is above all names, so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess. And here's the name. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Philippians 2 is telling you that because of the death of Jesus, he conquered over evil, and he then is given the glorious right hand of God, exalted to the heavens, and called Lord. That's what, that's what our Psalm's about. All right, that wasn't convincing. You guys don't look convinced. We're gonna go to another one. Ephesians chapter 1. Turn, turn in your Bibles, Ephesians 1. This one is the coolest thing I think you'll see all morning, Ephesians chapter 1. Especially because one of the more troubling images in our text of Scripture is this idea of heaping up dead bodies, filling the earth with all of these bodies as he conquers over. And you're starting to wonder, like, wow, Jesus coming just kind of slay people? Is that what he did? No, no, he didn't. He converted people. He loved them. Through his sacrificial love and death, he fills up the earth with his body. Namely, the church. How's the earth going to be filled up with corpses and bodies? It's when people turn from sin, trust in Jesus, give allegiance to him, as they get their hearts changed, and then the whole earth is full of his body. Ephesians 1. You guys there? It's page 976. We're going to pick it up in the middle of a prayer and look at verse 19 and following. So this is a prayer. This is a great prayer, by the way. If you want to learn to pray, read this prayer and start praying it for people. And the prayer is about, I want you, church, in Ephesus, I want you to know how glorious and great the power that you've been given through through the gospel. Look at verse 19. And I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Does that sound familiar? Ding, ding, ding. Right hand. Keep reading. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, that's the name Lord, that's Philippians 2 language, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and ding, 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 22, he put all things under his feet. Is this not quoting Psalm 110? Yes? You seeing it? Favorite verse of the New Testament authors, even when they're praying. All things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Verse 23, here's our connection which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all because of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father. He then fills up the earth with his body. That's what he's praying here. So don't read Psalm 110 and get in this picture that the way God's going to spread his glory is to fill up the earth with Christians running around with swords and saying, we love Jesus and we're going to kill people. And there's going to be dead bodies all over the place. That is not what he's saying. He's saying that bodies, the body of Jesus, is going to be filled up all over the nations, and conquering will happen first in this age as people get converted, as they see the glories of Jesus. How do I know that's what's being said? Look back at Psalm 110. Who is my Lord? Who is my Lord? He is a priest, he is a king, an eternal priest. A God king, a human king, and a divine king. Who is my Lord? He is a conquering king that will have victory over his enemies. Who is my Lord? Last answer. He is a king with a willing army. Look at verse 3. Your people will freely volunteer in the day of your power, in the splendor of holiness from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth. The last phrases, the womb of the dawn and the dew of your youth. So many things have been written about that of like we have no idea what that's saying. But I think it's just poetry. It's talking about, hey, when the morning comes, there's a new day, there's a new dawn, it's fresh, it's young, it's life. It's talking about the, the, the brightness of a new morning, right? So think of that poetic language. And it's saying that the people, the people, the army that is going to serve, that's, that's what the language here, they're gonna freely volunteer themselves and say, I'm in. I'm in. I'm going to serve this king. Think about how different that is for a moment. Do most soldiers, I don't know, just think about the concept. Do soldiers always just fight and serve because they're like, I love love my king. I love my country. Sometimes, but don't some people just do it because they got to? And they're being told to. Yes, sir. Yes. Just doing my duty. I think there's a contrast in this psalm between those two images of just begrudgingly kind of doing the duty, and then people, it's saying, they freely, like, I want to sign up to be in this kingdom. I want to sign up and serve this king. And this is what I mean. I think that he's talking about people who love his leadership, who love his laws, who delight in them day and night, and they feel privileged to serve. How in the world, how in the world did we get this opportunity to serve in this kingdom? And as I wrote this point, I just could not get the song out of my head because I grew up in church. How many of you are like, I'm in the Lord's army? Those of you that are laughing, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you that don't, let me tell you what I'm talking about. As a kid, I grew up going to church, and they sing these very silly songs to help teach kids Bible truths. Some, some of them are good. This one I don't know. We'll see. The jury's out. And the song goes, I may never ride in the Calvary. Shoot the artillery, I may never zoom or the enemies, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir, I'm in the Lord's army. Yeah, right, you get the idea. The reason I'm not so sure about that song is I don't know if we should be getting kids stuck in their head. Let's shoot and zoom and ride, whatever. The point is, if we're saying, yes, sir, volunteering, I want to sign up for the Lord's army because this king is good. You're not going to use guns. You're not going to use planes and drop bombs over people. I'm not talking about what nations do. I'm not talking about if you're a soldier for the United States Army. I'm saying if you're in the Lord's Army, the kingdom of Jesus does not advance through violence. Turn the other cheek, we're about to see in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive 70 times 7. So here's my last question to all of us. Who's, who's my Lord? Like, you need to answer. That's my question for you. Who, who is my Lord? Who is your Lord? Do you win battles in your marriage by trying to win the argument or die to self? Men and women. Whose army are you in? Whose Lord are you serving and giving allegiance to? Do you conquer your enemies at the workplace or in your school or in your neighborhood or whoever is opposed to you? The way Romans 12, I think quoting the Sermon on the Mount says, If your enemy is hungry, love him by feeding him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. How do we smash heads? How do we apply Psalm 110 and smash the heads over all the nations? How do you heap burning coals on people's heads? Well, if it's your enemy, love them. Feed them. Give them something to eat. Isn't that, isn't that just so like countercultural and different? In this me-centered society, this get, 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 fight, fight, fight. You're your own little individual. No, you're not. A Christian says Jesus is Lord, and I serve him. And I don't do it begrudgingly. I do it freely. Man, I'm so amazed that I could be in this army. How good is this king? How amazing is the way he grows his kingdom by love and service and people with humility? Do you defeat the darkness by humbling yourself on your knees in prayer? This is how the kingdom of heaven advances. Your kingdom come, your will be done as the prayer on our lips day after day. Do you destroy evil in the world by proclaiming truth in love? What about Embassy Church as a community? Does this describe our community? Is Jesus our Lord? I really want us to think about this. Are we privileged? Overwhelmingly privileged that the way Jesus conquered us by so stirring our hearts to see how beautiful his love is, how, how amazing he fits into these shattered categories. But priest and king, lion and lamb, man, he's so beautiful. Were you not originally, when you first became a Christian, stirred up to this Jesus? So, shouldn't there be this like, I'm happy, I want to serve. And even there's times where when you're fighting against him, you're, you're now on the wrong side and you're, you're not wanting to go his ways and delight in his laws. And then you find how frustrating that is. That did not work out so well when I selfishly chose my own way. And then how beautiful and glorious is it when you do die to yourself, when you do lay down your life. Friends, I hope today That this question, who is my Lord, will ring in your ears this week as you go through your household, your work week, the rest of your life. Who really is determining everything about your checkbook and your bank account? The way you spend your time and your schedule? Is Jesus your Lord? Really? We really need to press in on each other on this point. It's not a burden. This is good. I'm not asking you to do something that... A, I don't want to do personally, and B, that wouldn't be so good for you. A blessed, flourishing life, that's who our Lord is. So, why? What reason do you have? Do you have a good one? That why you wouldn't want to make him Lord in every single area of your life? Has he ever let you down? Has he ever failed his promises? Has he delivered on his promises in Psalm 110? Is the Lord at the right hand? Is he both human and divine? Is he both a priest forever, interceding for you, praying for us repeatedly, constantly, making intercession? He came through. He always does. You can trust him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you now for Jesus Christ, the only one that could possibly be this Lord in Psalm 110. We thank you for revealing yourself to us and clarifying how it is that you conquer your enemies through love, through sacrifice, through generosity, through the fruits of the Holy Spirit with patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. I pray, God, that we would repent of any worldly ways that are in our minds and our hearts to think that the way to conquer is to use force, to use violence, to use swords to use guns. God, the people in this church, our main task is to be your servants, and I pray, God, that we would be so overwhelmed at this opportunity and privilege, that we would freely volunteer ourselves to this purpose, and that we would be bold like Jesus is, and then soft and merciful like Jesus is. God, would you help us now by the power of your Spirit as we leave from here? Would you so fix our eyes on Jesus that for any of us that are leaning one way or the other too much of Jesus as King and we're just bullying over people, that we would see the tender mercy of Jesus? And for those of us that are just laying down all over the place and not standing up for ourselves or others, give us a little fight, but for the right things fighting for what's good and right and just. Help us to fight for justice, for those that can't speak, for the, for the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the alieners, the refugees. God, help us fight for those things. Speak up. Use our money, our finances. Use our church to advance your kingdom, to serve in the Lord's army. God, this is our prayer, that you would, in fact, be Lord, capital L, Lord, over our lives, over this church. And shut us down. Close the doors. Make it end if if we're not. Help us to be an accurate representation of you. In Jesus' name, amen.